Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. People often talk about certain groups of immigrants that have come to America and wonder why some groups are so successful. One of the reasons is that it's a self-selecting population. Oftentimes to escape one's country, whether it was fleeing from Germany in the 1940s or Cambodia or Vietnam in the 1960s or Central America today, to do so takes a remarkable degree of perseverance and courage. It's often a high wire act requiring a do or die mentality. But it has a dark side. What happens when that same drive is carried too far? When bending the rules to survive becomes bending the rules to succeed? Then it's a little bit about that old adage that behind every great fortune is sometimes a great crime. It seems that certainly may be true with the Trumps and the Kushners, and all of us may be the victims. Telling us that story today is my guest, Andrea Bernstein. She's a Peabody Award-winning co-host of the podcast Trump, Inc., and her newest book is American Oligarchs, The Kushners, The Trumps, and The Marriage of Money and Power. Andrea Bernstein, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, and let me say to all your listeners that I hope that insofar as it's possible in these difficult times that you and yours are well. Well, thank you very much for that, and you as well. One of the things that's so remarkable about this story about the Trumps and the Kushners is really the immigrant experience that both families had and really how it set the stage for so much that we're talking about and looking at and dealing with today. Explain that a little bit first. So both uh, President Trump's grandparents and Jared Kushner's grandparents, his son-in-law Jared Kushner's grandparents, were immigrants, although they entered the United States under very different circumstances. Donald Trump's grandfather, Friedrich Trump, entered this country at the end of the 19th century, during the peak of the Gilded Age. And it was a time in American history that was much like our own, characterized by wide gaps in income and with the emergence of an very, very ultra-wealthy population, a very thin sliver at the top. And not only were people wealthy, but they were ostentatiously wealthy. There was uh, a popular restaurant in New York City called Delmonico's, where there was an artificial lake with swans swimming around. There were homes with actual gold toilets in them. This is the period when lavish mansions were built up along the Hudson River, Newport, Rhode Island, and in, in other places uh, in the U.S. So this was the uh, country that Friedrich Trump entered. He immigrated from Germany. He left Germany because inheritance laws meant that he was going to inherit only a very small, unusable plot of land. And also, he wanted to avoid military service in a country that had been at war for decades. So he immigrated to the U.S. and he fairly quickly found his way to the West Coast, to first Seattle and then the Yukon. And he made his money in the hospitality business. So he sold food and liquor and access to sex. And he followed prospectors where they were going. So when there was the last American gold rush in the Yukon, he followed the prospectors to Alaska. And because he was serving their appetites and desires, he himself was didn't lose money. He actually made money, unlike many, many people in this last North American gold rush. And after that, he moved back to New York and invested 
in the real estate industry. Now, it's a sad footnote of history that after he set up a real estate business in New York, he died while he was only in his 40s of the Spanish flu pandemic. And Donald Trump's father, Fred Trump, was then a teenager. About a decade later, he really took over the the family business. So that's the story on Donald Trump's side. Jared Kushner's grandparents had a very different story. They came over after the Holocaust. They were both from an area of Poland in northeast Poland around what was then a commercial center known as Novogrudek. And it was an area where there were tens of thousands of Jews and there was an active Jewish civic life. Jared Kushner's grandmother, Ray Kushner, was the daughter of a furrier. He had two shops, so they were quite comfortable. And his grandfather, was, who was born Yussel Berkowitz, was initially much poorer. But their Holocaust experience was in many ways similar. They were uh, in Jared Kushner's grandmother. Uh, was washed as first her sister and then her mother were murdered. The town, the area of 10,000 Jews, there were only some 300 left by the summer of 1943. And they realized that in this area where there had been tens of thousands of Jews, there were only a few hundred left. And Jared Kushner's grandmother was among this group. And they realized that if they did not escape from the Nazis, they would be murdered too. So they dug a tunnel about uh, 60 centimeters wide, uh, about two feet wide, and uh, about the length of two football fields under the barbed wire and beyond the Nazi searchlights. And one night on the eve of the High Holy Days in September of 1943, the remaining 250 to 300 residents crawled out and made it out, and many of them escaped to the forest where they lived in these dugouts hiding from the Nazis, and they managed to survive through a brutal Polish winter through the war. After the Nazis retreated, Jared Kushner's grandmother, Ray Kushner, and her father and sister made their way south. They took a train to Czechoslovakia, posing as Greeks, made their way to Budapest, where Ray Kushner met up with Jared Kushner's grandfather, Jussel Berkowitz, who had lived in his own, essentially, hole in the ground during the war. They got married, and they continued to illegally cross borders until they found their way to a displaced persons camp in, just outside of Rome. Now, in this period after the war, the United States, which had seen by then the U.S. knew what had gone in the Holocaust, but they had very restrictive immigration policies. And they could, the Jared Kushner's grandmother, Ray Kushner, Yossel Berkowitz, were waiting for the quotas. They realized that if they had a, if they changed their family relationships, because as they understood U.S. immigration laws, family units were prioritized, which meant that because Ray Kushner and her father and sister were there and her husband, Yussel Berkowitz, they understood it that if Yussel Berkowitz posed as his 
father-in-law's son, they would get favorable immigration treatment. So Yossel Berkowitz changed his name to Joe Kushner, and they boarded a boat from Genoa, took it to New York, and arrived in New York Harbor with $2 in their pockets. One of the things that's so remarkable about these stories is how effective they were in bending the rules or breaking the rules in some cases to get out of where they had to get out of and to get here. And that 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 became kind of a mark of success, the degree to which they could bend the rules to succeed. Right. I mean, I think that's absolutely right. And it is an ethos that has pervaded both families. I mean, it manifests itself in different ways. But what happened with... Jared Kushner's grandfather and grandmother, Joe and Ray Kushner, is they set up a real estate business at a time in American history when government was pouring money into things that could aid the real estate business. So highways, it was favorable to get home mortgages. There were federally backed mortgage insurance programs. All of these were scaled up in a way that immensely favored builders. And that is what Joe Kushner was doing. And it's what Donald Trump's father, Fred Trump, was doing. So they were building at this time where America was, government was really helping the home building industry. And they manifested themselves, both families, by sort of really pushing up against the rules. It was a family ethos passed down from generation to generation that breaking rules was something that could get you ahead. And we can see it, obviously. I think we see it every day with Donald Trump. We see it now. And we see it with Jared Kushner, who sees himself as a disruptor. He sees himself as someone who can approach situations, break existing rules, and from his point of view, turn it into success. But what we also see with Jared Kushner is that his grandparents did what I think anyone or almost anyone would do in their position, which was what was necessary for their family to survive and to thrive and to be in a position where their own grandson could get to one of the highest level positions in the United States government. But obviously where that has brought him is to a place where he is in a position of supporting policies that would make it very, very difficult for people in the position now that his grandparents were in in the 1940s to enter this country. One of the other aspects of this is the degree to which, in a way it was kind of the perfect storm, the degree to which the real estate business, particularly at that time, but but certainly even now to a certain extent, is really also about politics and about its transactional nature. Right. I mean, I think that's absolutely right. And I, I mean, I think that, you know, you can see it in, in certain areas like San Francisco, but it's long been true in New York and New Jersey that you have real estate, which is this incredibly valuable and limited commodity and that is regulated by government. And the difference between having a profitable development and a very profitable development is often getting a certain kind of governmental decision. So it might be a tax abatement. It might be a rule that allows you to build a higher property on your land than you would otherwise be able to. Uh, It might be changing an environmental regulation or some other regulation to make it easier for you to build a profitable property. It might mean getting a ferry service or a bus service or a road or a 
train built to your property so that you have a more desirable property to sell. So this is something that all developers in New York understand that they need to cultivate their political ties in order to become very wealthy. And it's very, very common. It's it's not it manifests itself slightly differently in New Jersey, and I'll get to that in a moment. But but in New York, you see developers giving to politicians. And what they have told me over the years is, you know, if the governor calls, what are we going to say? No, he could help us someday. So we're going to give him money. But Donald Trump and his father, Fred Trump, took this to another level. They cultivated politicians. They gave they became very close to some Democratic clubs in Brooklyn. They gave money. They hired lawyers. They hired personnel. But they also gave in a very specific way. So politicians and senior officials in in New York government have told me that they've gotten calls from Donald Trump saying, where is my variance on this fire regulation? Where is my permit for a bond package, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? Things that most politicians don't do. They don't ask in such a direct transactional way. They don't say, I gave you this contribution, therefore I expect a thing. So that's the story with with on the Trump side. Now on the Kushner side in New Jersey, Jared Kushner's father was being investigated for evading tax laws and for breaking campaign finance rules in a way that he saw could benefit his his company and enhance its status, but in a way the government saw as stealing from the taxpayers. And he uh, ultimately had a really sort of sordid tale of, of witness tampering, was arrested and ultimately pleaded guilty to witness tampering and to tax evasion and to campaign finance violations. So Donald Trump, I should say clearly, and his father, Fred Trump, were were not convicted of any crimes, but it's been, you know, I spent a lot of time in my book documenting the way in which they really crossed lines that other people were not able to get away with in New York. And that really goes to the heart of it, that they cross these lines over and over and over again, as you documented, and they were never any consequences for it. That, when, you know, when you talk about the requests that Trump made from politicians that were more brazen than anybody else, it's kind of what we're seeing today where he speaks the quiet parts out loud. Right. I mean, I think that's that is definitely true. And there were many places that I document in, in my book where his activities drew the attention of law enforcement. And he had a variety of tools in his book for combating that. One was that his family had a long tradition of giving to the Democratic Party in Brooklyn, which controlled not only the politicians, but also the district attorney. Uh, so if there were any potential law enforcement violations, that that would be something that he, the very people to whom he donated would be the people that would be making those decisions. He would charm FBI agents. And there are several places where I talk about he would go in personally and he would meet with these agents who were investigating them. And he was a very charming, disarming person. He would go in without a lawyer and he would sort of count on his ability to kind of, you know, destabilize the set of relationships. And there were a number of FBI agents who came out of those encounters and said, I was impressed by Donald Trump, that he met with me without a lawyer. 
those investigations stopped. So each time that the Trump family was investigated, and it goes back to the Senate Banking Committee, which looked at Fred Trump and other developers in connection with Federal Housing Administration loans and and whether they had improperly influenced uh, FHA officials to get larger loan packages than they would otherwise be entitled to. And there was a very thorough investigation in Washington. There was a lot of light shown on the issue, but there was no consequence for Fred Trump. And he went back to New York and he engaged in a series of uh, schemes and maneuvers to pass money along to his children. The New York Times called this outright fraud. So we see each time that they did not get any sanction for these activities, they would just go back and do more. And it's the pattern that we saw with Donald Trump all the way up through impeachment. We saw that the day after Bob Mueller's testimony where people thought, oh, you know, that's kind of a dud. He called President Zelensky of Ukraine. We saw what happened after he was acquitted in the Senate trial where he fired witnesses. He engaged in, you know, different sorts of both verbal and employment retaliation against people who he saw is going against him. It's hard to know what would be going on now, obviously, because of the national emergency. But We have seen the way in which Donald Trump has acted through the years as if the rules of politics and political gravity and uh, the law doesn't apply to him. With respect to the Kushners, did the fact that that Jared's father, Charlie, as, as you detailed, the fact that he went to jail, the fact that he had some consequences, did that have any impact on anyone? Well... The Kushner family, and we see this in many of the things that Jared Kushner has said afterwards, really developed a narrative around this, that that Charlie made some mistakes but was the victim of an overzealous prosecutor. That prosecutor was one Christopher J. Christie, who went on to become the governor of New Jersey and at one point the transition chief of the Trump campaign. And... They, Jared Kushner, there's this vivid scene that Christie writes about in his book, which I sort of corroborated in other ways, uh, that where Jared Kushner said to Chris Christie, this was a matter for the family or the rabbis. It wasn't a matter for law enforcement. So the lesson that they took away from it was not we shouldn't violate tax laws, we shouldn't break rules. The lesson they took away from it is we were the victims of an unfair prosecutor and Jared Kushner, as described in Christie's book, was responsible for getting Christie booted out of the transition team. And and I think that, you know, we're still living with the consequences of that because Chris Christie and I, you know, sort of in another set of stories that I did, I was very active in uncovering the Bridgegate scandal regarding Chris Christie. But Chris Christie, as governor of New Jersey, was acting as a transition chief in accordance with the law and was vetting personnel was putting in place procedures for the new administration, was doing the things that you're supposed to do. And and this is because transitions are seen as a very vulnerable time for American government because the idea is that foreign powers and others can take advantage while you're vulnerable. So there's this set of federal laws that are put in to ensure an orderly transition. Well, what happened after Trump was elected was that Chris Christie, uh, Chris Christie was fired. And according to Chris Christie's book, 
it was directly due to Jared Kushner. He was told the kid took an axe to your head. And the 30 binders of materials that he had prepared to ensure an orderly transition were thrown away in the Trump Tower dumpsters. And, you know, a lot of the ensuing chaos of the Trump administration, again, you know, we're sort of still, I think, living the very dramatic and sad consequences of that right now have to do with the fact that the administration was sort of flying by the seat of its pants instead of following normal government procedures. Talk a little bit about these two families coming together and and what that meant. So the opening scene of the book is the wedding of Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump at the Trump National Golf Course in Bedminster. Feels a little bit like a scene from The Godfather. (laughs) You know, a wedding, there's a really interesting reason why a wedding is a narrative device. I mean, every Godfather starts with a wedding or a christening or a big family occasion. And I mean, I think one of the things about weddings narratively is that weddings are a thing where something happens in front of you. And that doesn't actually happen in life where there's a sort of you go into an event and then there's a service performed and then everybody, including the couple, comes away transformed by it. So there's this sort of narrative movement that makes a wedding an inherently interesting time. This one, the more so because you see these families coming together. You see the, the Trump family and the Kushner family and there is this incredible array of people invited. There are some people from the real estate industry. There are all kinds of elected officials. The attorney general of New York, Andrew Cuomo, who is now the governor of New York, was there. Uh, the speaker of the New York City Council, the speaker of the New York City Assembly, New York State Assembly, the police commissioner of New York, various figures in New Jersey. There were movie stars. And this was a way that Trump who himself has made this clear, creates a sense of obligation. When he talked about his own wedding to Melania, so not this wedding, but he talked about his own wedding to Melania in one of the debates, and he said, well, Hillary Clinton came, she had to come because I gave a donation to her foundation. So he understands more than anybody about the sense of obligation that this invitation requires. And there is this way in which these two very patriarchal families in their moment of joining are announcing themselves to the world as families to be taken seriously. This wedding happened in 2009. And I think, you know, the way that I end my prologue, my prologue of my book, the way I end the prologue of my book is by saying the families were saying essentially to the world, pay respect to us. Foolishly, the world did not. Talk a little bit about how Donald Trump viewed this wedding. What was his perception of it in real time? Well, I mean, I think that there's a sort of a couple of, you know, sort of different strands here. One is on a personal level. There was confusion among all the parents about this wedding because Jared Kushner was raised a modern Orthodox Jew and his family really wanted him to marry a Jewish wife. And and there was actually a period where he and Ivanka broke up because his family was so concerned about the fact that she wasn't Jewish. 
And she then, they, Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump were reunited by Wendy and Rupert Murdoch, who took them, who invited them separately for a weekend wa- a yacht trip together. So they got back together as a couple, and Ivanka Trump began converting to Judaism. And there was confusion on the Trump side. Why was his daughter doing this? Why was she marrying a Jew? And the... There was also sort of confusion and a little hesitancy on the Kushner side, but they come to accept it. They hold this wedding, and it becomes this moment for them to express their power. And I think if you you know you mentioned the Godfather, and here is this expression of both family relationships, patriarchy, and the power of Trump's business over the political life of New York and New Jersey, and all of that plays out at the wedding. And, and talk about how this defines, as it evolves, this, this notion of oligarchs and how this plays into the most classic definition of that. Right. So the founding, the founders of our republic were very, very, very concerned about having just two wealthy people in general – They obviously had come out of these systems that were defined by monarchies, and they were very suspicious of the effect of wealth and wealth in politics. And they were very worried about the way that wealth would exert its influence in the nascent American democracy. They thought of the the potential for corruption as as serious a threat as war. But they also understood something about uh, temptation and desire, which is that human beings would be tempted to try to profit off of government. So they tried to put in a set of strictures and structures that would keep uh, these temptations at bay. And for a while, they were successful. But what you've seen in the United States over the last, say, five decades is uh, – both a removal of the barriers to people acquiring incredible wealth through a series of tax cuts and concurrently and not coincidentally an all-out assault on campaign finance laws and on the regulations and strictures that kept the very wealthy from contributing to political life. So you have these two things going on at once. And you have the influence of more and more money in politics. This is the oligarchy that the founders were worried about and that they warned against. And one of the things that we saw from the Ukraine scandal is for decades, it had been bipartisan U.S. policy to tamp down corruption and to make the Ukrainian system very oligarchic, excuse me, to make the system that is oligarchic more democratic. And one of the things that I learned uh, in covering the, the Paul Manafort trial and in reading some of the documents that have been released just recently, Paul Manafort was hired directly by Ukrainian oligarchs to get the candidates that they wanted to in power. And for a long time, he was successful. His next job was to come and work for Donald Trump. So what has happened is that not only this sort of, is there a philosophical movement away from more democratic systems and towards a more oligarchic system, but some of the same people that ushered them into places like Ukraine were also helping Donald Trump do this. 
So all of these things, I mean, you know, one of the things I really try to show in my book is that Donald Trump was not a fluke phenomenon that had to do with any of the many things that have been discussed in the 2016 election, but was the product of a system that was increasingly broken. And he just walked in, as he does, and took advantage. And so I guess the final question is the degree to which Donald Trump and Kushner and this whole this whole family is sui generis in this concept or whether others could could have done the same thing or is Trump also laying the groundwork for a shift that will allow others to do this in the future. So I'm really careful to say in my book that I don't think there's anything inevitable about the choices that these particular families made, that they made certain choices that led them to where we are. And at the same time, our country made certain choices that led us to where we are. And that these were a set of choices that got us to this place and a different set of choices could get us out. Having said that, Donald Trump is a very, very, he was a very particular kind of businessman and he's a very particular kind of politician. And he has used all of the ways in which the system has been broken to his personal and political advantage. And we saw that in his campaign, his last campaign, and we see that in his presidency. We even see it with Ukraine, with him calling up a a foreign president and saying, help me with an investigation that's going to help me with my campaign, that he is openly soliciting foreign interference in an election, that this is somebody who sees that, sees the opportunity and seizes them and then fights off all comers until he gets away with it. So I think that the answer to the question is yes and yes, that it is sui generis and it is systemic. And explaining all of that is what I hope to do in my book. Andrea Bernstein, her book is American Oligarchs, the Kushners, the Trumps, and the Marriage of Money and Power. Andrea, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Thank you, and thank you for your close reading of the book. I really appreciate it. Thank you.